0: Hello and welcome to Tell Me About Your Mother. I am thrilled to feature another Amy today, journalist and podcaster Amy Roost. You may have heard some of Amy's story on her Finding Rebecca episode of Snap Judgment, or read about it in the complimentary story that ran in the New York Times. She also hosts a podcast on my network, Critical Frequency. That podcast is called Fury, and it explores how women are living with and using their anger in Trump's America. It's really great, and you should check it out. Amy has also been editing a related anthology of essays, also titled Fury, and she recently wrote an incredible story for Dame Magazine about her experience dealing with two children with brain disabilities and then tracing the root of those health issues to a commonly used household chemical. There was a related snap judgment episode on that one, too, about having to make a decision for her son when he was unconscious and worrying that it might be a decision he disagreed with. Anyway, Amy's had an incredible life, and we get into a lot of it in this interview, including some potentially sensitive issues, so just a warning up top in case you're listening with kids. This episode of Tell Me About Your Mother is sponsored in part by Zola, the wedding company that will do anything for love. Zola is reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. You start with your free wedding website that's super easy to set up. You can choose from a hundred beautiful wedding website designs that fit any style or type of wedding. And then you can put your Zola registry on the website so that guests can get all the details in one place and buy your gift there too. It's great. The registry part is super easy too. The Zola store has the widest selection of gifts at all different price points. There's free shipping and returns, price matching, and you can choose from over 500 brands, including OXO, Cuisinart, Sonos, and Airbnb. You can also create funds for your honeymoon, future home, a new puppy, anything you want. Plus you can register for gift cards to your favorite brands like Delta, Southwest, Hulu, Home Depot, and more. They also offer this awesome 20% completion discount. So any of the remaining gifts on your registry you can purchase for 20% off after the wedding. To start your free wedding website and also get $50 off your registry on Zola, go to Zola.com slash tell me. That's Z-O-L-A.com slash tell me. Okay, back to the show. you have any sort of early memory of your mom that's connected to how you think of her as a person. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like your earliest memory, but the first time that you were like, oh, that's who my mom is.
1: There's a picture I have of her in my head where she's wearing white hot pants and (laughs) this polyester um, shirt with big lapels with a graphic sort of bright color print on it. Mm-hmm. And she has her hair done because she would go into the beauty parlor and have it, you know, set. Yeah. And she had big uh, – she always had great glasses. And such, for a while she did the cat eye thing. And, mm-hmm. But in this image that I remember of her, she had these big sunglasses she yeah. was wearing. And then she had these Nancy Sinatra boots that she just <laughs> rocked. And she had a nickname. We called her Thoroughly Modern Maggie. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so yeah I think um that was probably early 70s so maybe I was like 10 or something like mm-hmm. that but I that stands out for me that's so funny
0: yeah um okay and then what was like was she I know what what, well, what age were you when your parents got divorced
1: so my dad left when I was six okay
0: and you guys moved to San Diego
1: We we moved to San Diego after the divorce was final so I wasn't it was a couple of years. I was eight when we moved to San Diego. Okay.
0: And then, um, what was the situation with your mom, um, financially? Like, did that, was that, um, rough for her in terms of like how she was going to support you guys and stuff like that? Yeah.
1: So, so she was, you know, my dad was very wealthy. My parents with well, a family was wealthy yeah. and my dad had started his own business that my mom helped him start. And so that was a Bone of contention in the divorce because my mom felt that she should have, you know, a portion of the business as, yeah. well, as well as their the equity in their home and and she was fighting for child support and alimony and um, their numbers were very far apart at the beginning so it took a while but uh, when we moved to San Diego I think she thought she wouldn't have to work. And I've seen some letters that were written back and forth between them where she says, you know, you said I would never have to worry about money. And you know, you said I would, my standard of living wouldn't change. Um, but that turned out to be not the case. Um, and so she, I remember going with her in San Diego to a bunch of banks. Mm-hmm. And she just said, get in the car. We got it. We have to go to the bank. And mm-hmm. so we went to the, to the bank, the first bank. And... I stayed in the car, and she came out, and she—I could see she was about to cry, but she was just kind of like holding holding it together for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what was going on, but I knew she was upset, and I was kind of, you know, trying to be a good girl, yeah, <laughs> not make her more upset. Yeah. And uh-huh. then we—we, we, you know, she drove up this Rosecrans Street in San Diego, and she drove up the street a little ways, and she pulled into another bank. Mm. And so then this, she said, I want you to come in t- inside with me this time. So we go into the bank mm-hmm. and she's at, asked to see a banker and, and I'm holding her hand and, and um, she's actually holding my hand. I remember her like taking my hand.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we sit down at this banker's desk and she says, you know, I'm I'm recently divorced and um, I just moved to San Diego and I'm trying to open a line of credit mm-hmm. and and, you know, he asked, well, you know, are, do you have a job? No, I don't have a job, but I have alimony and I'm receiving child support. And it was just, sorry, no, you know, and, and I think, no, he, I think he asked um, what, what, about credit history. And so and we get, you know, like she's like visibly now, you know, about to lose it. And so we, she takes my hand and she's like, okay, well, thank you very much. And she just like walks out of there really fast. I think like hoping she can get out the door before she starts crying and we Mm -hmm. get in the car and then she's just crying yeah and so then um we go further down this rose crowns and we pull into another bank parking lot and she says okay you're coming inside with me again and we go in and this time um she gives them sort of the sob story you know like my you know son is uh Sick, and you know, I have three children, and I'm responsible for all of them, and blah blah blah. And um, I'm you know, single, and I you know, I have you know, all these credit cards, but they were all in my husband's name. And I remember this man very well because he was, um, I he had I, I remember he had. I, the only thing I remember about him is he had really yellow teeth, <laughs> but I just remember the yellow teeth and he was bald. And I remember those two things. And I just remember, but st- staring at his yellow teeth and he was listening and nodding his head. And then um, he's like, well, I'm going to give you a bank card with a thousand dollars on it. And that was what they called a credit card, like a bank credit card in those days it was a bank card. Mm-hmm. And so then my mom did start crying. She started just she lost it, and um, because she was just so grateful to this this banker, and thousand even that was thousand dollars. I mean, I guess in 1972 dollars, it was more than you know, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, um, that was a Bank of America, and I still to this day bank with Bank of America, even though they piss me off um, (laughs) because I just feel a sense of loyalty to them because they were the only bank that would give my mom credit after her divorce in 72.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which was like an early time for women to even have any credit, right? Like, yeah. Um, Okay. And then um, what type of mom was your mom? Like, was she the like baking cookies mom or was she? Yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, I think about this a lot because she was a mom that she thought that parenting was about how much you loved your child. Mm-hmm. And so she loved us a lot and we were all three of us adopted. Mm-hmm. And so she, you know, she used to tell us, you're loved twice as much. You were loved enough by your biological or natural parents to, for them to realize they didn't have, they couldn't give you the home that, you know, Mm -hmm, you needed and, mm -hmm. and then loved by us, you know, so much that, you know, we wanted to raise you. But um, because we were wealthy, she had, we always had um, like live in help. Mm -hmm. And so um, we didn't call it a nanny. um, But anyway, we always had somebody around that was kind of looking after our, you know, our day to day needs, like meals and you know, just sort of the the the, the gritty part of parenting, mm-hmm. and so I think my mom got to to you know she got to be our parent when things were were nice and we were we were going places, and you know um, she didn't. Uh, you know, I don't think she had to roll up her sleeves and parent all that much yeah. until after the divorce. So, mm-hmm. um, but she loved that must us.
0: Must have been like a huge adjustment. Yeah,
1: right? I mean, yeah. I think she really actually resented it having um, to, to cope with all and then you know my brothers were teenagers and getting in trouble and um, but no it was uh, she was just she loved us so much and that was evident to everyone I, I don't know if I had ever known anybody that you know was so proud of her kids and so um, you know just demonstrative toward her children mm-hmm. um, but I don't think she actually loved the day-to-day real work of parenting. I don't think that's when, when she thought of, like, I want kids. I don't think she thought, oh, it's going to be hard, and I'm not going to sleep very much. She had all that covered by other people. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, how old were you when you found out that you were adopted? Did they, like, sit you down and have to talk about it,
0: or, like, how did that happen?
1: You know, I don't even know. It was that yeah seamless. I, I imagine I'm, you know, maybe three or four, but I don't remember an actual sit down.
0: Yeah.
1: I was just always understood that I was adopted. And of course, you know, my brothers, they were six and nine years older than me and they were adopted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this, this wasn't my parents' first rodeo, but yeah, yeah, I was just, yeah, understood that. Yeah. I was special.
0: And did you ever have a, like, I'm going to go find my, my birth parents moment?
1: Not until I was an adult and I was having trouble, um, I had some problematic pregnancies and I wanted to learn my medical history, but I really was not curious at all. I mean, I was really, um, you know, pretty satisfied for sure with my, with, you know, with my mom. Yeah. I had some problems with my dad, but it just felt like this, this was my organic family. I didn't, I didn't yearn for like, you know, who was that person that brought me into the world.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, and then I want to I wanna have you kind of, I, I mean, I know it's a long and complicated story, but like a little bit oh, summarize the Finding Rebecca story. Yeah, because um, it's such a wild story.
1: It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a Mr. Toad's wild ride <laughs> yeah, story. Yeah. So my parents had adopted two boys, mm-hmm. and they uh, they did get pregnant once, but my mom had a tubular pregnancy, and mm. I think they kind of botched the, the surgery, and so... Mm. They um wanted a girl, mm-hmm. and um they were going to adopt a girl that my my brother who's just younger than me, six years younger but um a friend of my aunt, my mother's sister, got pregnant, and she asked if. My parents would adopt her child, and they did. And he mm-hmm. turned out he was a boy, so that was Bobby. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so they wanted a girl, and they hired an attorney um, to interview a, a, a mom who was expecting. And the mom uh, was white, and I don't even know—we don't know if they asked if the father was white because I think they just maybe assumed that the father would be white since they were looking to adopt a white child, or if they asked, maybe she didn't tell the truth. Yeah, but they um brought the, the child to the house, which we just discovered why that is, but that's another story for another day. Mm-hmm. And they brought the child to the house and my parents noticed that she was kind of blotchy and they asked if the nurse was with a, an attorney that brought the child and they said, Well, you know, she's she's just um, you know, she's uh blotchy from the birth canal, you know, just kind of ruddy was the word I remember my mother using and they said, mm-hmm. you know, it'll it'll lighten up over a, course of some couple weeks. So Mm -hmm. then it didn't lighten up. She continued to get darker as her as her color came in. And so my mom and dad suspected that she might be black or at least biracial. And so they took her to the pediatrician who confirmed that. And by this time, they'd had her for about three months. Her name was Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And um, they'd had her for about three months uh, the date, the amount of time varies depending on who you ask. But so my dad says she never spent the night in the house. And, oh my uh, God. <laughs> and my and my brother my brother, my oldest brother who was eight at the time, was like, no, she was there like about five months. It was cold when we got her and it was really hot when, you know. So anyway, my dad insisted that they couldn't raise her. And this was 1962. So um, in 1961, in the same town that they lived in, a minister had announced that he was going to adopt a black child, and they had that the home. Um, the parents had threats on their home. The children had, you know, threats against them. Mm-hmm. So we lived in an all-white community north of Chicago. That was, um, it was just, you know, a different time, and they'd gone through this horrible integration crisis where they tried to build integrated housing, and the, the city condemn the the development and turn the development into parks, which is, wow. are the parks where I ended up growing up, you know, learning to swim and playing and that kind of thing. So it had already had all this racial tension. And my dad, I think part in part because he was, you know, a businessman and he didn't want it to affect his business status and status in the community, mm-hmm. said no, absolutely not. And my mother by this time was was bonded with Rebecca and she, she didn't care. And my mother also happened to be um, and uh, a civil rights activist. And mm-hmm. she was um, on the very small minority of residents in the community who a couple of years earlier had protested in favor of integrating the community. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, met Eleanor Roosevelt as a, as a result of that because Eleanor Roosevelt was bankrolling this development. 1959, she was protesting for the integration of Deerfield, which was 100% white, and this development was going in. And, and Eleanor Roosevelt, who believed that segregation was the scourge of society, and if we could just, you know, integrate communities, that would solve racism,
0: yeah. was
1: bankrolling this development. And. Um, when the city planners and mayor found out about it, they wanted to condemn it. And they eventually did. But my mom was on the picket line. And Mm -hmm. people from CORE at University of Chicago, in fact, Bernie Sanders, there's pictures of him and Deerfield protesting and the Black Panthers were protesting. And it was a big deal. It went on for like years. The the, um, court case went all the way to the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. and it was denied cert. And you know they upheld the, the city condemning the land. But anyway that was in 59 and then she had Rebecca she got you know adopt they adopted Rebecca and that was in 62 and um and then in 65 she decided she wanted to go um to Selma to march during the the second march
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and um my dad was uh, didn't want her to go he just felt it would be dangerous and you know I was what three at the time, and my yeah. you know my brothers would have been like you know nine and twelve, so my dad just was like you know he supported the civil rights movement, but he just thought it was a just a bad idea. And mm-hmm. she, this time, stood up to him and said, "I'm going anyway." Mm-hmm. And so she took a bus down there, and she slept in a Greyhound bus station, and then marched twelve miles a day for mm-hmm. five days, and stayed out in these camps on the side of the road, and um, yeah, so that. For me, um, those, knowing that story, knowing what my mother, and, and those were the values she, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, passed to us. I mean, that's another thing I guess I would say. I was, um, you know, how did I emulate her? I, I, I'm all about social justice, and I get that from my mom. Yeah. And I've always wanted to make my mark, you know, like do something that really made a difference or be part of something not do something but be part of a movement that was really and um I was really busy raising sick children so I didn't have an opportunity to do that. Um but then, you know, I feel anyway, so that she just had really big shoes to fill. So she in a way as much as she was sort of um in the shadow of the men in her life, mm-hmm. She was also just this incredibly resilient seventeen years survivor of cancer, you know, single mom of three children. And two, my two brothers were just total hellions. Doesn't even begin to cover it. Yeah. And um, you know, working mom. You know, just sort of the Mary Tyler Moore type. You know, where she was, you know. So, yeah. Um, those are always those those things about her i have always just I've admired and I've always felt inadequate because, especially because of the things like Selma and the Deerfield um, picketing and the the things that she stood for and fought for Mm -hmm. and put her life at risk for. Um, Yeah, so she's, I've always, it's like my, I'm still trying to live up to her, her legacy and I, you know, that's a good legacy to, to try and live up to. Yeah.
0: so then they took Rebecca back.
1: Yeah, so okay, so and then they you were like the replacement. I was the replacement child. I know, <laughs> right. which is so crazy to think. Yeah. Where would I have ended up if I hadn't been adopted by my family and right. um yeah, and so yeah, so they they gave Rebecca back to social services and mm-hmm. social services placed her with a family in South Chicago mm-hmm. and she ended up having a great childhood and um And yeah, then they adopted me like six weeks later. And what's really trippy about that, that I only just realized, is that I came into a grieving home. And I experienced um, a home that I wouldn't have experienced if if my parents hadn't already had this you know, child that they had adopted. And so my mom was despondent and still, I mean, she was, she never got over it her whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, She was, she was bitter and resentful toward my dad because of this. And I think it's really kind of the original sin of our family. It was Mm -hmm. really what broke my parents' marriage apart. So yeah, I came into this home that had just six weeks or so earlier lost a child. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know how my mom did it. I don't know how she managed to find love in her heart for me, but she did. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, yeah, so, the, I mean, to just bring the story full circle, uh, 53 years later, um, I decided to go in search of Rebecca. And this was after nobody in my family had talked to it, except for my mother once told me the story of Rebecca when I was about 10. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So... The story had been told, and I was, it, I was it was understood that I was never to mention it again, mm-hmm. and I never did. And my mother never mentioned it again, and she died when I was 30, so mm-hmm. um, 35. So then uh, I just decided I wanted to find her, and um, I, I did. <laughs> I mean, that's a long story, so I refer you so to, crazy.
0: yeah, <laughs> New York Times, right? It's, time, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a crazy story, um, okay, and then. Um was there, can you remember a time when you like the first time that you kind of understood that your mom was a person separate from sort of like her identity as your mom,
1: yeah <laughs> so after my parents separated, my mom started dating, and she met this this man named Roy mm-hmm. who um I mean, truth be known, I had a big crush on him. <laughs> so my mom became the competition, right? <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. This is, this is my boyfriend. <laughs> um, so I was like, maybe this was before we moved to San Diego, so seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, obviously I had sort of, you know, gone through object permanence and knew that my mom was separate from me. But this yeah. was where I really thought, oh, you know, like she has this other life. You know, she has um and i also was jealous because of all the attention she was giving to him and mm-hmm. all you know the, the they she was started going out more often and you know dressing up and um her social life became much much more active even from when my parents were dating yeah. i mean when my from when my parents were married so mm-hmm. yeah that that was that. that was when i was like you have she has another life and um and she's she's interested in the same man i am <laughs> So yeah. Um, okay. Are there any um,
0: any sort of um, like lessons that you picked up from your mom about being a mom yourself, or um, well, yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Anything that like she did as a mom that you are either like I definitely want
1: to do that or I yeah. definitely don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. So most fall into the category of I don't want to do that. <laughs> but <laughs> I would say. A um, couple things that I did want to do is my mom was always very affectionate and very, as I said, demonstrative and mm-hmm. um, touchy feely. And uh, I've always been that way. I don't know if it was nurture or nature. I'm mm-hmm. half Italian, so it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, and she was also very liberal. Um, mm-hmm. And that got her in a lot of trouble. And, you know, given her set of children, it didn't work out so well. But I was always really, I taught. Uh, she was liberal. So she would talk to us about, cause that can mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she had, she had pretty, you know, lax, you know, come home when it the street lights come on and which mm-hmm. would be like nine thirty ten o'clock in the summer, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, it, you know, she, she, we, we were, we were on a very long leash as children. Mm-hmm. Um, but also she talked to us about everything. Like if we mm-hmm. had a question, she answered it honestly. And I remember that, feeling a lot different from my friend's parents Mm -hmm. that you know there were taboo topics that you just didn't talk about right and yeah so i you know asked my mom about sex and i asked my mom about drugs and um you know whatever it whatever whatever i wanted you know she would tell me and we would talk about you know watergate and the vietnam war and it wasn't she didn't talk down to me she talked to me as an equal and i think um that's why her hat- keeping Rebecca as a secret was so mind-boggling to me because she wa- she wore her heart on her sleeve and, you know, she wasn't afraid to address any topic. And so when I found out she had a secret from me, it was devastating, hmm. you know, and it was, and it was just a complete shock that she would have kept something so important. Like there was this other child from me. Well, and yeah. Something that did probably really impact your childhood, yeah. you know, yeah. that's, and I think it was probably because it was just so painful she couldn't talk about it. And yeah. I know she talked about it a little bit more with my brother, Steve, who's nine years older, mm-hmm. because he remembers her, so he right. wanted to talk about it. Right, right. Um, okay, what, were the, what are the don'ts? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, my mom was super smart, mm-hmm. and she could have been. I could see her maybe having become a, a civil rights attorney, mm-hmm. and um, she worked for the Chicago Mail. She okay, so back up. You're, you're probably going to ask this question, but yeah. she she was born on a farm uh-huh. in Iowa, actually in Brooklyn, Iowa, which was recently in the news because of Molly Tibbetts. Um, very small town in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. And she, um, when she was twelve, she went to work for the neighbors down the road, taking care of their children. And, uh-huh. but um, she was very, uh, uh, very much. Um, she wanted off the farm, mm-hmm. and so she told me she used to write the words of like Paris and London and you know she when she practiced her cursive she would just write out the names of all the places she wanted to travel to yeah so as soon as she graduated from high school she moved to chicago mm-hmm. and this was right before the end of world war mm-hmm. <clears> 2 <throat> and she moved in with her sister and another woman so the three of them moved into this apartment and they all went out and bought a whole bunch of stuff on credit at a like a department store. Oh, Carson Perry Scott, that's what it was. And then they returned half of it for cash. Like in those days, you could buy on credit and they returned. And that's what they lived off of mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then continued to pay the minimum payments on the credit card, which is kind oh, of a funny money. story. But <laughs> she worked went to work for the Mailer's Union, and Chicago Mailer's Union. And I've seen letters from friends of hers who worked with her at the time, saying, you ran that place, and and how, you know, I think today she would have been chief of staff, but then Mm -hmm. she was um, maybe an executive secretary, probably, Mm -hmm. you know, just the the boss's secretary. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, she, you know, she she was, she's just a smart cookie, and she, um, so then, you know, having, um, not having, but giving up her career, in order to have children and sort of become a socialite because my dad ended up doing very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she had to, you know, just give up. Well, I think she gave up her her dreams, her career dreams to yeah. become a mom. And she didn't it didn't occur to her that she could maybe try to do both. Yeah. Um, and I don't think my dad would have been down with that. Um, he wanted a very certain lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So long story short I think um that she she tried she saw me as you know her I think she wanted me to complete her dream Mm -hmm. and so she she tried to live vicariously through me Mm -hmm. and she put a ton of pressure on me I mean she used to call me her nickname for me was prez Mm -hmm. because she thought I would be the first woman president and my graduation cake from high school said you know you know congratulations prez on it and and it, this was a serious dream of hers this wasn't a joke yeah yeah <laughs> and so you know she i remember i was going planning on going to law school when i was in undergrad that was my intent and um when i decided i didn't want to do that she was devastated i mean i was like i had told her you know i'd killed somebody i mean she was just it rocked her world she could not believe i was giving up that dream because it was her dream mm-hmm. So um, that's one thing for sure. Uh, you know, like, not do not live vicariously through your children. Do not. Um, it's it's hard sometimes. Like, one of this is going to sound like I'm doing that. One of my sons <laughs> works for NASA, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, I got a son who works for NASA. You know, it's like, <laughs> and it's like it's like it's like it's my accomplishment. You know, it's like, and I get all <laughs> catch myself. I was like, no, this is his accomplishment. Mm. You know. Um, but that, yeah, that's one big thing. And you know, she was a martyr, mm-hmm. and she I just know that game. No. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right so I, I think we should be smoking a cigarette and drinking a, uh, like, yeah, a bottle yeah. of whiskey right now. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I it was hard being um, somebody who disappointed her. You know, because I, you know, I can't tell you how many diapers I've changed and you're going to, you know, go for your PhD in Russian studies. Are you kidding me? You know, like, like I had become some junkie living on the street, you know, like I was just a total failure because I wasn't going to law school despite getting into Columbia. You know, I was like, right, right. um, yeah, yeah. So it, the, the martyrdom, we used to, you know, the old expression, if you could bottle your the guilt and sell it you'd be a millionaire by now and mm-hmm. we j- we joked with her about that all the time but it was it yeah it was it weighed heavy on me and so yeah. i made a conscious effort not to do as the, particularly those two things live vicariously and not put a lot of guilt on my children like you know i would express what i would want and i still do right but then if they say no and i've just i've learned that you know okay yeah. you know and that disarms them too <laughs> When I yeah, say, oh
0: wait,
1: exactly, a little, a little keto parenting, keto, like, oh yeah, like, uh, f- faked you out. <laughs> um,
0: okay, so what about in terms of um, relationship stuff? Like, th- was there anything that you saw your mom doing either with your dad or like with other men that she dated? Oh my god, that like informed. You know, or that
1: you think might have like influenced how you are in relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, for one thing, um, my parents fought just most of my life because yeah. Rebecca. So
0: six when you guys split up, or when they. Yeah, right and then. their
1: marriage their marriage started going rapidly downhill. Like my brother will say, I never saw them fight before Rebecca, and after Rebecca, that's when the fighting began. So. That's um, yeah.
0: Well, yeah I mean if he was like insistent on it and like she saw Rebecca as her child yeah that's pretty fun like that, yeah' be pretty hard to get over yeah.
1: yeah yeah and she didn't yeah and um and so the fighting in front of the children and then my mom also would you know badmouth my dad again and again and yeah. that was something um you know I'm sure I did some of it when I <clears throat> separated from my kid's dad um you know you get the, what are they called, the crazy years, those first couple of years after after a separation or divorce. And, you know, I said, I'm sure I've said regrettable things about my ex-husband. I'm positive of that. But I was always very cognizant of it, you know, not wanting to poison my, my children's opinion of their dad. So there's that. And um, I think the emphasis on appearance. Also, my mom, I don't think I recognized it at the time, but, you know, she was painfully thin. And I think it was very important for her to, you know, maintain, um, Sort of a model is the Twiggy here is, you know, sort of yeah. a model like weight and, you know, the amount of time that she spent applying makeup and getting her hair set and, you know, her wardrobe. You know, she had two huge closets and it still didn't hold all of her clothes. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I guess you know, in terms of her relationships, the uh, you know, I think she really led with appearance and, and and as a and she was so bright, but she didn't, she didn't put any as much value on her intelligence. She didn't, and I don't think she thought men would, so she went with the the looks, especially I think my dad having, you know, left her for another woman, you know, that kind of messed with her head too. But the thing I remember that has informed me maybe the most, and I think my husband's pretty grateful for this, Mm -hmm. is um, so when she was dating Roy, Mm -hmm. he lived in L.A., Mm -hmm. and we lived in San Diego, and we went up there one weekend, he had a studio apartment with this bed. Was on kind of a raised platform, and mm-hmm. there was a little uh, <clears throat> balcony type thing across the across the side of the bed, and then um, I don't know. I think he must have. I, anyway, it was open to the living room, and I was sleeping on the floor in the living room mm-hmm. or pretending to sleep. And it was that time in your life where you're like thinking of mortality, and like I hope that I die before my parents. Where you're really afraid of dying. So I was having yeah. trouble sleeping in those days. Yeah and i was just kind of wide awake thinking about death and they thought i was asleep and um, so i started hearing the bed creaking right and and i'll never forget will never forget this and um and so my and so I've said you know could you do something besides just laying there like a dead fish And I, you know, like I didn't even know what to picture, you know, other than a dead fish. I mean, a, you know, but like I didn't know at that point even what all was entailed. What, right. you know, I didn't even I don't even think I'd ever heard of the missionary position. Right. But I just knew that being a dead fish while having sex was not a good thing. It was yeah. not a good luck, And I didn't ever want to be a dead fish. Yeah. So I became very interested in being a to, uh, being a, a skilled yes <laughs> a skilled partner in bed <laughs> so that became somewhat um of a you know something i w- always want to work on a goal <laughs> a goal yes <laughs> yeah yeah and um yeah i did okay <laughs>
0: that's so funny that's so funny yeah um uh okay is there any um you you said you were 35 when your mom died 30 yeah
1: 35
0: was there like, um, I don't know, were there any sort of like uh, like things that you wish that you had said to her or like um, issues that you wish you had been able to resolve before she died? Or...
1: I was just reading her diaries recently from, from those years leading up to her death. Yeah. And so she was diagnosed in like, oh gosh, maybe 80 mm-hmm. with um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And she went in and out of... Of remission like three or four times she lasted 17 years That's amazing. yeah wow. yeah and when I when I decided to go to college back to the living vicariously mm-hmm. I she thought I would pick a California school mm-hmm. and I did apply to California schools and I got into Berkeley and I don't know some USC I think mm-hmm. and I was really into politics her fault mm-hmm. and I decided I really I wanted to go back east and I got into I wanted to go to Georgetown but I didn't get in but I went to George Washington University mm-hmm. and I I just, you know, it was blocks from the White House, and mm-hmm. she couldn't believe that I would, you know, move so far away, and she actually moved to sh- back to Chicago so she could be closer to me. I don't know how that makes sense at all, but she she wanted to be closer to me, and she thought, you know, <laughs> Chicago, I have friends, so she moved back to Chicago for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and um, she came to visit me in Washington, my freshman here, and I was individuating, you know, I'm almost like have all my friends, and you know, I was like, my mom's coming, but I didn't really want her to. Mm -hmm. And I think I might have been a little bit embarrassed by her. I think she um, at that point was, uh, you know, wearing a wig and she had, you know, she was really swollen from the prednisone for a long time. And Mm. so I think, you know, I might, I, I don't know, but I'm thinking I might've just been, you know, like, is this, person I, the person I want my friends to meet, you know, like that sounds yeah. horrible, but I'm, you know, I was 18 age. years yeah, old totally. and I was looking to impress all my new friends. And yeah. so anyway, she came in for the weekend. We had a pretty good time, but when she left, I asked her if she would take a cab to the airport. I didn't have a car, but I didn't. Yeah. I didn't go with her to the airport in, mm-hmm. in the cab, and she thought I would. Yeah. And I was like, No, no, mom. You know, I'll just put you in a cab. <laughs> and I, I read in the diary recently that that for her, that's when everything changed in our relationship oh. because she drove off in the cab and she was crying, and I and I didn't like turn around and wave, and mm-hmm. so that um that was for her like the defining moment of our relationship you know going south
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so then you know it was tough um she didn't approve of the man i married my first husband mm-hmm. and she, she literally said to me i always thought you'd marry a doctor or a lawyer you know so <laughs> so if you weren't going to be one, of those <laughs> you marry one. right That's so funny. yeah yeah <laughs> the, the thinking is just so foreign but so yeah. Anyway, when um, so we went through some pretty tough years. I mean, it was like the last twenty years of our relationship were kind of rocky, you know. And um, I don't think she liked me very much. But then when I moved back to San Diego after college and graduate school, I I started taking her to all her doctor's appointments. Mm-hmm. And um, and then by then I'd had kids, and she was a great, great grandmother. She had just a really special bond with both my children. Mm-hmm. And so um, that, to going to the doctor's appointments and the chemo sessions and that kind of thing, yeah. I mean, that just kind of breaks everything down, and you become really vulnerable with each other. So I think we were able to get back to that place of, you know, where I, you know, she was – my mom, and I loved her, and I didn't want to lose her, and I treasured our time together. Um, you know, maybe not as much as she would have hoped, um, at least according to the diaries, but um, I felt like we had made up some really good ground there the last couple of years. Yeah. And then when she was in hospice, um, uh, she had a, you know, she was hospiced in, in the home, so mm-hmm. the hospital bed in the living room and all, and um, you know, I was there, we, you know, all the, several of us were just kind of holding vigil, and, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time just in her hospice bed with her, just curled up next to her, mm-hmm. and, you know, just letting her know it was okay, and um, so I think, I think we got to a really good place in the end. I remember your your yeah. um, episode because, you know, you were talking about pain, and here's my mom, 17 years with cancer, yeah. you know, and going through all these treatments. And, and you
0: kind of forget about it, and then you go, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And yeah. by this time, she was working as a food and beverage manager for a country club, and mm-hmm. she worked really long hours, and, yeah. you know, she didn't believe in wearing sensible shoes, so she was <laughs> always, you know, just, and, but, you know, she, and she fell and broke her elbow and had neuropathy, and... And so and and it was really hard when I was reading her diaries to read about how much pain she was in. I don't think I fully appreciated. I mean, she told me she was in pain. Yeah. But um, you know, I was having my own issues. I was having. but didn't have a great marriage. I'd had a child with birth defects, I'd had a baby right after that, you know. So yeah. Yeah. I was kind of busy and um, you know, kind of maybe stuck in my own. Little... You might not live to It's cold out here. It's so cold. So, um, when my mom and I were really really close. I was as a, you know, despite her flaws, you know, cuz she's human. Uh, she we went watch sunsets, you know, we lived near the beach and we would go, you know, watch sunsets most nights and we traveled together. We traveled really well together. We drove. We would drive every summer back and forth from Iowa and had just these great adventures. But um, something was happening in my life that um, was really difficult and, mm-hmm. or had happened in my life that I'd never told her about. And that was that my brother, Steve, had molested me for several years as a child, mm-hmm. uh, sexually molested me. And so when I was about 16, he was over, he had moved out by then, but he was over for dinner one night and he was still verbally abusing me. So he would wait, he was kind of, um, you know, he'd just wait and and like, you know, in the bushes until the, you know, some my mom would leave the room and then he would say something really cruel to me. Mm-hmm. And so um, he used to call me Amy Big Butt. <laughs> and so yeah I know like, could you get a little more creative good lord (laughs) um but it hurt at the time you know I didn't laugh at it then but he um said something about my breaking a chair when I sat down on a chair and um I lost it it was just Mm. who knows you know why that triggered the damn right yeah but it did and Mm. so I went upstairs and I was just Crying and hysterical, literally hysterical, mm-hmm. and my mom came up and she hadn't heard it, so she didn't had no idea what was going on. And my brother's like, I don't know, you know, like she just start crying, you know. Mm-hmm. So she comes up and and then she, you know, and I'm going, you know, I'm a young woman now and I'm going through my own sort of sexual discovery, and so right. and I'm, you know, I've got all this baggage that I'm right. carrying around, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm terrified of sex actually and all um and I call I can see is dead fishes but no yeah. <laughs> fishes die all I can see is dead fish. Um but anyway she comes up and she's and I'm like, you know, heaving and sighing and I can't get the words and I was like, what's the matter what's the matter and I said, you know, you know, Steve molested me. You know, he's he was he forced me to give him blow jobs is what I told her and yeah. And um and she had this look on her face that told me she knew. Mm. And it just, it wasn't a surprise. Like, I don't know if he'd done some other really weird stuff that she yeah. knew about or she knew this specifically, but she wasn't surprised. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, she comforted me. But when, but, but when I, cal- by the time I calmed down, she said, you know, I just want this to be our little secret. Like, let's just keep this between ourselves. And I did. Yeah, I did until I was 47. That was the next time I, I told anybody about it. Wow. And so for me, I didn't know why I was so angry at my mom until much, much later, like after she died is when I realized, yeah. oh, I was really pissed at her for 20 years because she did this thing to me where she made me, you know, yeah. hold on to this, this secret yeah. and not speak my truth. Mm-hmm. And so... Not that I had an excuse for saying mean things to her in my 20s, because I didn't, and Mm -hmm. she was a great mom. But I think, you know, just to give it some context. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: Tell Me About Your Mother is part of the Critical Frequency Network. It's produced by me, Amy Westervelt, and our music is by B. Beeman. Original illustrations for each episode are drawn by James Guthman.